Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montesi and I'm missing our chief rooster, James Begley, who is allegedly in Perth, but I have a feeling he's just intimidated by Rooster Radio's next guest, Mr Tom Richardson, political reporter, over a decade of experience uh, across The Advertiser, The Australian, Channel 9, where Tom and I spent a good few years together, and now he's at In Daily, which, how would you describe In Daily, Tom? Um, in Daily is a, an online newspaper, I guess, um, so a news website, Adelaide-based, uh, independently owned. Um, I've been there for a year, and it's been you know, one of the really positive decisions I've made in my life. It's, it's just a you know, really different environment, uh, great place to work, great place to, um, I guess, produce news, a lot of variety, and, um, yeah, get around it. Yeah, nice. So, I mean, that is probably one of the interesting um, sort of moves in the media was when you, about a year ago, went across from being the state political reporter at Channel 9 to In Daily, and my first thought was, geez, it's a perhaps a reflection of the changing media landscape, but what was sort of going through your mind as, in terms of making that move sort of away from away from the, the TV? Oh, look, a number of things. It's um, I'd been at nine for nine years, and while I, you know, I loved it as a place to work and loved the people there, just felt like it was time to do something different. Um, but it wasn't something I was, uh, you know, angling to do. It actually just came about fairly... Uh, not quite accidentally, but pretty spur of the moment, um, where the uh, the previous uh, senior reporter, uh, whose name's Kevin Norton, um, went back to do some unfinished business with his former boss, Martin Hamilton-Smith, who'd just become a, a Labor frontbencher quite controversially, and, mm-hmm. uh, and Norts went across to be his chief of staff. So there was a vacancy that opened up, but th- the whole time I was at Channel 9, as you'd know, I was writing a column for... In Daily, which before that was called the Independent Weekly and was literally a newspaper, a print paper. Um, so I'd been writing for them for a long time and the editor, David Washington, called me up one day just to say, just to let you know Norts is leaving. Um, uh, not, he not threw just... a bag of cash at you, didn't he? No, look, he, he wasn't <laughs> sussing me out at all. Um, and uh, and it kind of... I had a bit of a lightning bolt moment, as a matter of fact. Yeah, there were a few issues. I mean, one was, you know, that I was... Um, thinking, you know, what's what's my next step professionally? But another one was, um, and, you know, as you know, in your situation, you've got kids a similar age uh, to mine, and um, we were literally just sort of mid-conversation about, you know, how we're going to make things work with my wife, who's, who was going back to her job in also in TV news and kind of weighing up uh, how we can strike a, a balance with, um, you know, childcare and that kind of thing. We don't have a lot of family to rely on, um, and it's pretty inflexible, the TV news uh, regimen, particularly with all the late-breaking live crosses and the like. Um, so this uh, just gave me a lot more flexibility to kind of do what I, I like to do, but um, have a bit of freedom as well. What does the day look like for you then? Maybe just take us from, from the morning right through to the end of the day, including kids, everything. What Give us a snapshot. <laughs> look, it... it each day is different to some degree. I mean, our focus is is really primarily self-generated news and unique content. Um, so um, we get in, you know, three days a week. I'm 
we get the kids ready and, and get them off to childcare and then you know, get in. You'd like to have a few things up your sleeve for the day, but we're basically just on deadline for the morning. We publish at 12 with an electronic direct mail, an EDM that's called, that goes out uh, to subscribers for free. Um, and that, we try to get that out for midday, so basically we're working to a midday deadline, try and bash out you know, two or maybe three stories or a column on Friday or a footy column on, on the Monday, which I tend to do on the Sunday night um, during footy season. Um, and uh, thereafter, unless there's a, a massive breaking story in Adelaide uh, or a, a story that's developing that need, we need to, to keep on um, throughout the afternoon, we're pretty much gathering news for the next day's edition um, through the afternoon. So it's still got that deadline pressure, which I love about journalism and probably wouldn't function well without. I really need a deadline <laughs> to keep me on track, but it, it's just a bit earlier than I've been yeah. traditionally used to. So. Um, you've kind of got a few hours to decompress and, and I, I pick the kids up from childcare on the three days that they're there and, and then, uh, um, you know, have the evening without, you know, just coming straight in off a live cross and being able to, to give them some attention, which is probably a bit of a welcome change for them. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I understand it would probably have a lot more flexibility in the TV world, even when a story breaks... Um, I mean, are there situations when you're able to just smash out a quick story from the car or, or whatever? Absolutely, like and that? I have done that, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can pretty much file from anywhere, so a lot of mornings I'm just sort of... I get up at, you know, six and sit there in my, in my pyjamas getting the kids <laughs> breakfast while I'm bashing out some, some copy and, and changing, the, uh, changing the lead story. Um, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago with those, um, you know, very tragic events in Paris, um, and we don't t traditionally publish on the weekend, but um, it was pretty clear that, um, that the site was going to need some, some updating to reflect the enormity of what was going on, and once I, once I started sort of doing that, and, and David did that, and I went into the office and did, did, um, did that as well, but I was sort of sitting at home updating things, and it quickly became clear there were a few local angles we could pursue and, you know, basically just got a bit captivated with um, with where that was going and it's just one of the, the great joys, I mean that wasn't a joyful day, but the great joys of journalism is that you're not just um, sort of a passive um, observer of news, mm. you're actually able to, you know, basically sub-edit copy you know, that you would otherwise just be reading and then and get it online and get people the information as quickly as you possibly can. I do find that fascinating about the changing way that we're producing and consuming news. I mean, is this... I mean, even for TV, uh, print, otherwise, is this just the way of the world now where it's news 24-7, um, we, we're constantly producing it, constantly consuming it, it's this, this hunger for real-time news? Um, look... There is an element of that, but I actually, um, you know, look, it, it's become a bit of a an insatiable beast in that regard, but I, I don't actually think it's it needs to be that way. That's certainly not the model that we're mm. doing. I mean, if, if we were to be trying to keep up with bashing out news all the time as it happens and being the first to do it, I mean, we're, we're a small independent operation, so our focus is more on... Um, quality news, news that you won't get anywhere else, content you won't get anywhere else. 
Um, and I actually think people really respond to that because what gets lost often in the, the rush to get things out and be first with it is just basic facts quite often and um, certainly a lot of detail and a lot of analysis goes by the wayside and I think sometimes people actually don't, you know, the people out consuming news, um, they're not always obsessed with did this reporter get this online three seconds before yeah. everyone else at the same press conference. They're, there is a core and, you know, a, um, a substantial enough core of people out there that actually want quality news um, that has certainly made in daily um, a successful operation and, and there is a market for that kind of news mm. as well as this sort of uh, more um, fast-paced, all-encompassing 24-7 news that has really sort of become the dominant um, force in, in news over the last maybe yeah. 10 so years. So do you think the quality has been impacted well, look, I think it can't help but be, particularly when newsrooms are cutting costs all around the world, mm. and so you are, in general, relying on more people, uh, fewer people to do more. Um, you know, it's, it goes without saying that there is going to be uh, more content, but in less detail. Mm. On his exit, Tony Abbott had some quite strong words for the media, um, particularly about quoting anonymous sources, uh, covering the leaks that come out of parties and what, whatever else. I think the words he used was um, media rewarding treachery. Mm. What do you think of the media's influence on politics, uh, sort of the good, the bad and the ugly? Well, I know you're a, you're a big rap for Tony Abbott yourself <laughs> as, a, as a young conservative. Well, not as young as he used to be, but... I've got a bit of silver in my hair like you for know. Those, for those who, who aren't aware, Monty's uh, screensaver back in his Channel 9 days yeah, was, a, gonna come up. was a, a nice picture of John Howard, who he obviously was a, an idol of his back in the day sort of interchange with Morrissey from the Smiths. So. Yeah, well, I think I described my sort of political views as um, Smith, Smith-Howardism. So it's, a, it's that blend of uh, John Howard with Morrissey from the Smiths. It's a very I think, unique yeah, blend. I'm not you, sure they really when you balance together. When you balance it out, you sort of end up in the middle. So, um, <laughs> But we digress. Yeah, no, get, back, get me back yeah, to what so I was we talking were, about. Yeah, oh, no, Tony Abbott. Yeah, so, um, look... He has a point, but then given he, this was his farewell speech, effectively, after he'd just been knifed, you could say he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, look, there's no doubt that everyone in politics, um, when they deal with media, are there to push their agenda, and that goes for anonymous sources and it goes for people giving press conferences or putting out media releases. Does that mean we shouldn't quote anonymous sources if they're giving you information? I, I don't think so, but you probably do need to be aware of what agenda are they pushing. Um, and Is that something you consider? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've read articles written by you where you've quoted an anonymous source. Um, how do you weigh up whether to actually, you know, give their their quote coverage or whether to just say, look, this guy's just pushing his own agenda? Well, look, it's you'll always get politicians who say, you know, these... Uh, Anonymous, you know, source. Well, some some politician. I remember Isabel Redmond when she was in some trouble politically as Liberal leader here in in, in state politics. Um, I think at one point intimated that a, an anonymous source quoted in one media outlet um, was effectively made up, 
um, and there, I guess, who's to say? But mm. it's easy to critique anonymous sources when you're the the object of their derision. Yeah. Um, and if a journalist is being told there is a serious push on against you know a party leader or a someone in a certain position, are you going to ignore that and ignore uh, you know what is a significant um, story of public interest because the person who gave it to you uh, wants to protect their identity. No, of course not. You you have to weigh these things up and present them in the public interest. And the you know it it will be clear in the story that the person is not putting their name to it, and the readers can be the judge of what you know what's behind that. But the fact is, in in public life, often and increasingly so, um, with some of the. Um, mechanisms and institutions we now have operating in this state, um, the only information you're going to get hold of is through anonymous sources. Mm. I mean, we've seen, obviously, a pretty high turnover of PMs in recent years in Australia. Some people have sort of made the correlation between all this commentary on social media, mm. uh, this sort of bloodthirsty uh, pursuit of the big political stories in the media and it's creating this sort of storm mm. which is putting in even more pressure on these politicians and political leaders. I mean, do you agree with that? I do to some degree. I mean, that's where Abbott did make a, a cogent point. Um, but by the same token, I mean, I don't think the social media thing is, is as powerful as people give it credit because it is particularly Twitter is a bit of an echo chamber. It sort of re reflects the uh, political passions of the few relative few who use it mm. rather than the sort of mainstream who aren't particularly aware of it and they're the ones who probably drive, they're the swinging voters I guess who actually drive the outcome of most elections in this country but uh, yes there's no doubt that this sort of um, uh, pace and, and culture of the news cycle does influence politics but it's also a symbiotic relationship and I think you could just as easily argue that the political spin has influenced the media cycle as the other way around. Yeah, and that was that's my next point exactly, is the flip side is spin, which uh, seems to be an increase of it. Um, and that's also because politicians have access to their own social media platforms. They drive their own agendas. It gets retweeted and reshared by all of their supporters. So mm. they have an extra um, sort of opportunity to pre present spin in the public. How do you cut through all of that BS and actually, okay, this is the core of the story. Let's cut out all the, the messaging and the, and the spin. Well, there's an, it's an interesting question and it, there's no real simple answer to it um, because it does require a degree of, um, of subjectivity and traditionally people don't want journalists to be subjective. They, you know, the, uh, the epitome is to be objective. And I, I came to the conclusion some years ago that that if anything has changed, it is that that journalism requires some degree of analysis to cut through the spin. Um, and it, you know, whether that's as simple as saying that announcement was made at a certain time, um, which is usually to capitalise on, um, or in a certain way, it's usually to capitalise on the news cycle. You know, traditionally, in the when I when I started at the Advertiser, and they, you know, they still do this to some degree. Certainly, do it nationally, federally. Um, the, the tried and true method was you'd 
drop a press release to the local paper, the morning radio follows it up and then the TV news follows it up that night, mm. so you basically get three bites of the same cherry over the course of uh, 24 hours. Um, that's The culture around that has certainly changed, uh, I, I think, for the better, that um, there's... You know, different media are less inclined to sort of follow the follow the scraps, and mm. they want fresh news. They um, they want to be um, breaking a, a, you know, their own agendas. So, I guess that does put more pressure on the uh, on the uh, news makers to satisfy this sort mm. of um, engorged beast that is the twenty four hour yeah. news cycle. But by the same token. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's where the Rudd government probably went off the rails to some degree because he was just obsessed with always having something to announce um, and people probably reasonably quickly gauged that there wasn't a lot actually being done while there was a lot being talked about. To do your job, do you just have to be a cynical bastard just to be able to keep um, rocking up to these press conferences? You see the drops in the paper. It must be frustrating. And then you rock up to the presser... I don't think you have to be a cynical bastard, but it helps. I mean, I was lucky enough to be one in the first instance. <laughs> Before you actually did the job. Yeah. But no, look, it, um, it helps. And it's funny enough, I mean, one of the things, writing about footy now, which I do, you know, not from any kind of technical or even very knowledgeable base. We, but will, we will come to this footy part, by the way. I know that you're quite keen to, to push it. No, no, I'm not, I'm not changing the subject, <laughs> but, um, but on that subject, it's... I was always quite glad that not to cover it as a as a you know reporter, which you did, yeah. um, because when you cover these things sort of at close quarters, it can be a little bit disillusioning when you're dealing with people that you yeah. you know once held in high regard, and that probably happened to me to some degree when I started out covering politics. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, others can surprise you that you were you know a bit more cautious about, and you you know realise that some people are very um, well motivated and, and passionate and hard working but you know I think the interesting thing that people can get quite partisan about their politics but the, the fact of the matter is um, political parties, sporting organisations all of these um, institutions are much like any other workplace you'll have some people that aren't really worth their mm -hmm. salt and you'll have others that are very dedicated and hard working and, um, and uh, you know you just hope that those are the ones that hold sway in each side yeah, I mean, do you think... I, mean, I think these days the public doesn't seem to buy it, all the spin and, and the messaging, and um, I think, by and large, the public seems to understand what goes on behind the closed doors. I think they're more, they're more savvy about it, that's certainly true, but the media also wear a lot of the cynicism themselves. I think you'll find that... I mean, I don't know specifically but you regularly see these little sort of surveys of public uh, you know disenchantment and, and journalists are probably just as far down the list as politicians are on most scales I would say yeah, that's true. and that's you know that's why I feel like it, it's it's a bit silly to assume that someone who actually covers the news at close quarters and knows you know more about I guess the the personalities and issues involved than the average man in the street it's it's probably silly to assume that they don't have any um, agenda is not the right word, but any sympathies of their own. So, in a sense, it's more honest with the uh, with the readers and viewers to kind of own that to some degree and say, "This is what I think about this," and mm -hmm. then it's there on the public record, and you can't be accused of 
you know, manipulating otherwise objective stories. Um, people can judge when you're just putting the facts out there, but, I mean, I've always, you know, had a dual role as commentator as well, and, and um, I think people can see when you're kind of keeping those things separate and, um, and I guess, delivering um, some insight based on the experience that you have. Mm. I mean, just for for our um, many listeners out there in Rooster Radio world, um, for those who perhaps might not have an understanding about the sort of team that is around politicians, uh, let's say a political leader, how many media advisors and spin doctors, as they often call them, would mm. be around that person? Um, now the exact number employed by the government, I don't know off the top of my head, the opposition tend to put it in the sort of, you know, around the 100 or so mark, but I'm not sure how they're counting that possibly. I mean, most departments have their own advisors yeah. as well. Um, it's there's certainly a media unit which assigns a media advisor to each of the 14 ministers and two to the Premier and and a few hangers-on besides. So, you know, they, there's certainly um, no shortage of people who, whose job it is to um, massage the message mm. for public consumption. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the flip side of that is often too many cooks spoil the broth and there's, uh, <laughs> there can be, it's sort of almost like a, a public service of its own sometimes waiting for something to go through three sets of eyes yeah. before um, before every minister who is affected by it is, uh, is satisfied and you sometimes just want someone to say, no, nah, look, this, this is what's, this is the answer to your question. Yeah. Um, you know, and my preference is always to talk to a minister rather than, than an advisor, um, well, usually. <laughs> um, but you know we, that was something we learned. I mean, when I started reporting on politics, Mike Ram was the premier. He was famous. He was dubbed Media Mike. He was famous for um, being able to, I guess, spin the spin the politics. Mm. You know, quite deftly. Um, I did feel like there was a, a kind of a cultural backlash against that over time. That, and in fact, you'll see it regularly these days with when a federal politician visits South Australia that they really get a bit, you know, um, get their hair blown back a bit by the, the you know, um, the style of questioning which is possibly, you know, has a bit less decorum than they're used to um, in other parts of Australia. And I, think I, do, I do find state politics press conferences always um, very interesting to watch from an outsider looking in. So I think there's try, the Journos like yourself trying to get at the politician, but then also the journos yelling over each other, trying to um, have their own voices heard. I remember, yeah, there was this, this this period a few years back when I was at nine, where we just kind of realised collectively, almost it must have been during, you know, one of the many liberal leadership challenges or something, when we actually just needed answers and we weren't getting them. So we would just we, would, we always know where these guys work, so we would just go and wait for them, and when they arrived, we'd talk to them. And it, we just suddenly kind of subconsciously clicked, this is much easier <laughs> than requesting an interview of someone who doesn't want to talk to you and waiting all day to be told no. Yeah. We'll just go and ask them questions. So, and, you know, as, as a result, there's usually a media pack assembled at the bottom of State Admin every Monday morning where 
where all the ministers troop in for their cabinet meeting. Um, and it can be quite quite enjoyable just to see the uh, smiles fall from their faces when they think they might be asked some curly question or other. What, uh, what are your thoughts on politicians as leaders? Uh, here on Rooster Radio, we talk a fair bit about leadership, um, a lot of the time in a business context, but politicians mm. are put up as leaders. Um, but are they really? How good are they at leading people? Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, you probably can't generalise because it, it does go to different individuals as, and they all, like elsewhere in business and in life, they all probably have different skill sets. And um, my, my view on it is probably that there are different times in maybe electoral cycles or economic cycles um, or, or moments in history where different styles of leadership are called for. Um, and so, like in times of crisis, and, in times and of crisis, like I think yeah, you, people really respond to politicians of conviction. I actually wrote a column on, on this topic last Friday. Um, I guess comparing the relative standings in the polls at the moment between Jay Weatherall and Stephen Marshall, and it's really quite surprising. I mean, I, it's, we haven't had a state news poll for a while, so. It, Possibly the Liberals here might get some kind of bounce from what's happened federally with Malcolm Turnbull, but nonetheless, these sort of personal approval ratings of the two leaders are, are pretty telling, and it's 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 kind of amazing because you know there's there's no doubt that the the state economy is not in a good way. Um, mm. We've got the worst unemployment in the country, and we haven't had that for a long time. Um, so we've we've gone past what we used to be able to say, the worst unemployment on the mainland because Tasmania were always just worse. Um, that's just not the case anymore. We're the worst in, in Australia. And and there are major structural challenges that mean we probably... That situation won't change anytime soon. And yet, if an election were, were held today, you'd certainly give the, the Labor government pretty good odds of... of retaining office. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I was going to ask you what the state of play is here in SA and you think that despite all of the bad news about the economy and jobs and everything like that, that the Labor government would still retain their spot? Well, certainly based on what happened at the last election where they didn't even need the majority of the two-party vote to, to win office. Um, the last published polls had them um, you know, surging ahead of the Liberals. Uh, like I say, I don't think there's been any done post-Malcolm Turnbull but I, I think what people are responding to is that whether or while has while he's been a fundamental part of a government that's overseen the, the, the situation we're in now um, and administered to some degree, has been really canny about articulating what the challenge is and and I guess articulating how he proposes to get out of it. Mm. Um, the Liberals are sort of starting to do that now, but. Um, Stephen Marshall's style has always been far more consensus-oriented. And I think before the last election, when everyone assumed he'd be Premier, that seemed to play out really well. Um, it possibly hasn't played out quite so well since. Um, and that, that's an interesting mm. case study, I guess. It probably the, the thing it reminds me of was Paul Keating back in the early 90s, who similarly had been Treasurer and overseen uh, the recession we had to have, and yet became Prime Minister. and and won an election against all odds. And I think, and in fact, you talk about leadership, well, Labor's slogan in the 93 election was leadership, um, and that was the thing that they 
basically picked Paul Keating to highlight that when when you're down in you know mired in in economic recession, you actually need a strong leader to pull you out of it. And while people never warmed to him, in fact, actively disliked the guy, um, he was seen as um, as a as a strong leader. And uh, I think a time like '93 required strong leadership, and possibly that's the case in South Australia at the moment. So, do you think we're lacking strong leadership at the moment? I mean, the fact, as as we've spoken about, the turnover of prime ministers, uh, the fact that South Australia is performing poorly, and yet it would seem likely that the Premier would keep his job. Um, Nationally, we've certainly lacked strong leadership for a long, long time. Well, since... um, Since Howard. (laughs) Well, since Howard, but not since... I would argue not since Howard left office, but sometime before that when Mm. his his Prime Ministership got a bit derailed by his own leadership tensions and probably just by having been there too long and losing his losing his way a bit. So probably since about 2004 or five. Um, and, you know, since that time we've had, you know, this sort of ongoing circus under Labor where they were just sort of passing the, the baton from one leader to the other. Um, you know, there were some policy elements that... You know, put in place under Giller, but largely overshadowed by the, just the chaos mm. around it all. And the, the thing that's... And this is institutional, not personal, but the, the, the thing that's really destructive in national politics is the, at the moment is anything that Gillard actually did, um, how Abbott promised to get rid of. And similarly, lots of things that Abbott has done, Turnbull's already gotten rid of. So there's no kind of continuity or, or, or sense of stability... Um, Whatsoever, you know, certainly from a business perspective, I'd imagine you know you can't make any plans around you know what the tax regime is going to be in three years' time, for instance, because you don't know who's going to win the election and what they're going to do, and whether someone wins the election, then the next guy's going to undo it all. Um, So yeah, I think there's a lot of sort of game playing that people probably need to honour election mandates a little more and say, well, that's been done, and we'll that's the new landscape, and we'll work beyond that. I think it's the hope of many that uh, Turnbull getting the gig will fix the problem, will settle things down. Uh, it's certainly settled things down. You can, you can, you can. There's a tangible sense of a sort of a new consensus around just having. I think just having a, a leader who's actually, you know, objectively been a success pre-politics. Mm. You know, he's actually gone and done things. Um, you know, lots of things before he even thought about entering politics, and I think. You know, Labor foolishly tried to emphasise how much money he made as a way of sort of drawing a wedge between him and, and Middle Australia. But I actually think, if anything, it emphasised that we actually have a Prime Minister who's made a success of himself and um, people actually responded quite positively to it. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I think is quite interesting is the influence of government on business. Uh, business is a, a huge part of the messaging for all governments, particularly in South Australia, obviously federally, the economy's at the, at the centre. Mm. Uh, what sort of influence do you think the governments should have on business, if any? What, what's the government's role? Yeah, well, that's a, it's an interesting one, and it is sort of fundamental to the debate in South Australia at the moment, where Weatherall has sort of unapologi- unapologetically stated that he thinks that there is a major role for government in... Um, Regulating might not be the right word, but uh, in sort of uh, 
pointing the way for business and, yeah. and establishing the um, the landscape in which business operates, facilitating business, um, spruiking business. Um, the Liberals' philosophy obviously is, is far more, you know, government should, should get out of the way. I think one of the issues I have to some degree with how this all plays out is that businesses themselves can often send pretty mixed messages because they will, you know, the standard refrain, you know, as a, as a community is government should get out of our hair and let us get on with it. But then, you know, w whenever things aren't going so well, they'll call for more, Hand you know, government subsidies and, you know, yeah. um, contracts to be given to local firms, etc. So, you know, I think to some degree you have to know what you're asking for and be consistent. Mm. That's a good call. It's probably uh, the right time to switch pace a little bit and uh, before we wind things up, have a little bit of a chat about Touch of the Fumbles, which uh, Tom's been sort of pushing to get into this chat. Uh, so Tom Wright... You, you told me it was the fundamental <laughs> aspect of the chat. Oh, look, it is. It's very important. It is actually one of my favourite columns, I'm not going to lie. So Tom writes, uh, during footy season, a weekly piece... Uh, satirical in nature about football and coming from his perspective as the sort of mad Crows fan. And that's one of the interesting things um, when I first got to know Richo. Someone mentioned, oh, that Tom guy, the political reporter, I, I saw him at the footy once and, you know, he was, you know, he was splashing his beer and, and yelling out obscenities at, at players and it was just this other side to the sort of uh, staunch political reporter. It's this... This nutter Crows fan. No, I'd say that the the political reporter is the other side. That's probably more <laughs> the the fundamental side. But it's it's yeah, it's funny because um, I came to football quite late, actually, as which wouldn't surprise you. But <laughs> um, in fact, when you know my, my mates from school would will remind me that back in the sort of early to mid nineties, it was I was more the the guy who would be calling them up for a chat in the last minute of a tight match, completely oblivious to what was going on. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know what happened, but I had an epiphany one day and then spent probably about three years just completely immersing myself, like basically catching up on 20 years of, of lost football uh, uh, education. Um, I'd watch every match of a weekend that I could and, you know, go back and find old classic games and read read all the old books and just became quite quite um, fascinated by it all um, and uh, yeah and, and got more and more passionate about the the local team or you know sort of ironically the less successful they became which um, <laughs> you know didn't do much for my general mood but yeah what so when I was writing for um, for the independent weekly all the, you know all those years at nine, I pushed basically with a succession of editors that I wouldn't mind having a crack at some kind of footy colour column, probably in the in the style, of, to some degree, of the late Matt Prices, um, who used to write politics for The Australian, but also had a footy column called Left Field, which pretty much pushed his pro-frio agenda. Um, but they, and they, they used to, in fact, David, our current editor, used to say, um, or said to me once, Crows aren't anything like Frio, you know, they're largely successful, they're um, the main club, they're not sort of the underdog in, in Adelaide, um, they're rich, you know, there's, it, they don't have that kind of, uh, you know, underdog vibe about them that will kind of carry the column. 
Um, but anyway, he, he agreed to run it. And then finally, after all these years of, of pushing for it, I thought, Jesus, what, what am I going to do now? Because I actually had not much thought beyond this concept that that would be kind of fun to do. Um, but it was perfect timing. It was you, perfect timing. You really had, got in there when the Crows were just... They had a shit year yeah. and, and Port had a great year. and um, It was post, post-Kurt Tippett. Uh, there was so much ammunition to... But it was, it was sort of, I think the reason it's kind of, you know, to some degree caught on is that, um, there, you know, there's, there is this sort of generation of supporters that are getting a bit fed up with having to talk about something that happened in the late 90s and, um, and always being thereabouts and never quite being there. Um, and uh, I think that is where you really nailed it, is you captured the frustration of the uh, Crows fan base and also the unreasonableness sometimes of um, the way that Crows fans in particular think in terms of how they look at Port Adelaide, how they look at the world, just generally the, the world view of a Crows fan is quite humorous. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I hope that it sort of has a, has a broader... Um, I mean, it, I used to cop it, you know, every single week from all the Port supporters, but I think they've kind of... Those who persisted with it have kind of realised... That we, the fact that we hate each other is what it's all about, to mm. some degree. We actually need this rivalry, and it doesn't matter which side you pick. It, you know, it would I'd be writing much the same thing if I was a Port supporter, but from the other perspective. Mm. Um, but you know, they'd say, "Why you say something nice about Port?" Well, because that's the point. Yeah. If I was writing nice things about your club, you would stop reading it. Um, yeah, and that's I think probably where part of that is the rise of footy satire in the last couple of years with Titus O'Reilly and some of the other people that are doing things. I think we're also sick of sanitised AFL. We're talking a lot about politics and AFL has almost become a political party in itself, the way that everything's delivered in this sanitised way, it's controlled. Well, it probably goes back to what we were talking about with politics earlier, that it's sort of unreasonable to assume that people who write about football don't actually follow a team themselves. Mm. Um, and you know, I don't write about football per se. I'd probably do a little bit more now. But you know, people people say, "Oh, that's that's really biased." Well, yeah, that's it is biased um, because I follow the Crows, and you know, am I supposed to pretend that I don't? Yeah. Um, but you know, regardless, I don't think that on most weeks I doubt that the, the Crows are probably the least happy of all with the output from the fumbles. But yeah, it was all a bit of it. Just, uh, bit of an accident. In fact, on the day before we published the first one, we still didn't have a title for it, so we ended up using what you might recall was my um, dream team, yeah. team name, Touch of the Fumbles, and that's uh, the rest is history. You did get quite obsessive with your fantasy football for a while there. And you I had, had to... to give that up, yeah, it was taking over my <laughs> weekend. Not, yeah. not before a premiership or two, though. Did you actually end up winning a fantasy premiership? I remember winning one. Not Maybe not in, in the... Uh, Oh, in our in, in the league, what was our, our league? league? The Tumbleweed Cup. The I'm Tumbleweed sure. Cup. I think yeah. I was a grand finalist once or twice, but yeah, no, it's... yeah. I think it's been a good decision for both of us to opt out of fantasy football when you've got young kids. Otherwise, they might get a little bit neglected. Yeah, exactly. I I literally thought to myself, I don't want my son's first memories of his weekend to be me just constantly on the phone. I mean, I'm on the phone <laughs> enough as it is, and. Uh, yeah, it was getting a bit silly. Particularly the the uh, the eye opener was when I took a we took a family holiday to to Greece and I ended up paying a massive phone bill because I would be checking stats every five minutes during <laughs> games. 
I do remember that actually. You checking in and getting the odd message from Greece about you know some obscure player who managed to score a hundred points and save your team. It was... it was a good competition for knowing a lot about some Melbourne rookie mm. um, who. It's probably played five games in his career. And for taking interest in games that you wouldn't otherwise give a stuff about, like Melbourne v Richmond on a Sunday evening or whatever. Couldn't think of anything worse ordinarily. <laughs> uh, but fantasy football just brings the game alive. Well, there were games that were literally 100-point blowouts and I'd be on the edge of my seat because <laughs> I'd be requiring two points from one particular player to finish up my weekend. Pretty horrendous, though. I remember my wife just snapping at me sometimes just for this obsession with fantasy football. So I think it's, yeah... Bit of a family saviour, just opting out of it. Indeed. All right, well, thanks for your time, Tom Richardson. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat politics and uh, a bit of footy at the end there. Uh, thanks for having me. And I should mention that uh, Rooster Radio is now on Facebook. We've got a thriving community of 75 likes. Well, 74 if you don't count mine. Yeah, and Tom, Tom's a, a big fan as well, so... Um, yeah, so jump onto facebook.com slash HQ. Get around us. And thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to the Rooster Radio podcast, hosted by Tracks Leadership's James Begley and Apiro Consulting's Andrew Montesi.